0: You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabaniss. If we've not met before, my name is Craig, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here, and it's really great to uh, have you with us, uh, joining us for worship today. Thanks for, thanks for being here. Um, and we are early on in a study together through the book of Ephesians. So we've had a lot of new folks coming in the summer. A bunch of them are upstairs in a new members class right now. Um, So I I don't want to just sort of take things for granted. I realize that would probably be good to explain some things we do throughout the the service, in case you are new. Um, And uh, our typical pattern is to teach through a passage of Scripture. And so we believe that God's Word is authoritative, that it is, uh, that it is our authoritative Word of truth. So we seek to sort of open the Scripture, open the Word of God up, and let it breathe, let Him breathe through it upon us. And so we kind of go a section at a time, typically. Uh, through books of the Bible. And so we're working our way through this letter called Ephesians that Paul wrote in about 60 to 62 A.D. Uh, The Apostle Paul wrote to a church and was probably read among other churches uh, in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, uh, this area called Ephesus. And today we're going to read verses 15 through 23, and then I'll just sort of draw out, look at a number of phrases and draw out the, the meaning and the point and make some application Um, and uh, that's what we're going to do over the next little bit here. So let's start by reading uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. This is God's holy word. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, May give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all." Well, this is a section about prayer. This is Paul praying for the church. and uh, So what we're going to talk about today is this idea of praying to make it real. Because Paul has just explained to them God's great plan of salvation and now he's praying that they would not just know what he said, that they wouldn't just even understand what he said, but that they would experience in their lives in reality, that, there would, that the gap between what we know and what we experience, that that would close and that God would make himself real to them. Well, he starts off by just thanking God for them because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. Uh, I do not cease to give thanks. So he, he is thanking God for them. He's heard of their faith. Now, he's obviously been there. He planted a church there, uh, but it's been years since he's been there. So perhaps there are folks there now that weren't there when he was, and he's heard that they as a church believe in Christ and that they are loving one another. So his response is he's thanking God for them. And, and by the way, this should always be our default response for the church of Jesus Christ, for any Bible believing, gospel preaching church. This should be our default is gratitude. I thank, I, I, I do not cease to give thanks for you, verse 16. My posture towards you is I thank God for you. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I hear that you have faith in Christ and that you love his people. So I'm constantly thanking God for you. I was engaging recently, I believe it was last week, but I was engaging recently with somebody who was new to the church and uh, they were telling me various things that they were appreciating about our local church. So they were had an attitude of this Thanksgiving for the church. And uh, my response to them, this is going to sound really cynical. I didn't mean it this way, but my response to them was, "Stick around for a year, and you'll get to know us." And um, uh, what I was trying to do was just simply to say, "Hey, you know what?" Uh, we're all a bunch of fallen people. I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're experiencing God's grace. But we've got issues starting with me. And I just was trying to say, that's obvious. The person knows that. But uh, but I was trying to say something like that. And I was thinking this individual's response was far more like Paul's than mine. He was starting with, I'm, th- I'm thankful for what I see and experience here. And my More biblical response would have said, God has been, this would have been a better response God has been very good to us. There is so much to give thanks for in this congregation and among this people. We got a long way to go, but God has been good. That would have been a better response instead of stick around a year. (laughs) You know, uh, stick around a year, you'll find our warts. But you know what? After a year, if God gives you eyes to see, you'll see his grace in ways you don't even see now there 's only going to be more to thank God for in a year there 's going to be more awareness of how far we need to come, how far you know we 've yet to go, but there 's going to be more awareness of how much God has done as well that 's a biblical response that i didn 't offer in that moment. I was just trying to be a realist there a little bit, and i 'm very grateful for our church. So Paul is amazed by what God is doing and he 's thanking God for this church and after he thanks God, he prays. And this prayer's got a lot to it. We're going to look at it. This too, verses 15 through 23, is one sentence. We mentioned last week we did 11 verses. It was one sentence. This is one sentence in Greek as well. Uh, So it, it looks like this big prayer, but he's really praying for one thing. One big thing. So here's what he does. Verses 3 through 14 from last week, he is describing the great purposes of God. Uh, He says, the Father chose you, the Son redeemed you, the Holy Spirit sealed you, and this is all moving forward to this great goal of verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So he's saying God has done all of this work, you've done none of it, Uh, He's done all of it by grace to save you and it's all moving to this great day when God will renew all things in a new heaven and earth and those who are his will experience a flourishing beyond imagination for all eternity. So he says, with all of that in mind, what God has done and with where we are heading, with all of that in mind, he prays in verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him so because of all that god has done i pray the spirit gives you wisdom i pray the spirit is your revelation that he gives you revelation in the knowledge of him now the niv translates this in a way that's uh, perhaps more graspable than esv the, the niv says that that he gives you the spirit of knowledge and uh, uh, revelation and knowledge in him that you may know him better So, I've told you what God's done, Paul says, and you know him because you believe, but I'm praying that you know him better. That's the big prayer request. Thank God for the church and pray the people of God would know Jesus better. Uh, You could do a lot worse than that kind of prayer for your prayer life for the church. That is praying for the church, that Paul, this is what he models for us. He's praying that they will know him better. Now, they already know Christ. He says, I thank God that you have faith in Jesus. They already have the Holy Spirit. Verse 13, he says, you were sealed with the Spirit. So they already know him. They already have the Spirit, but he's praying that they will see things they're not currently seeing. That their belief will become alive to them. That they will know his purpose in a deeper way. That they will indeed see more clearly. Open the eyes of their heart. That's what he says, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. He wants the eyes of their heart to open up and see. One commentator writing about this described an experience he had when he was younger. He said, so how strong is it? My friend was showing me his new telescope. It was set up in an upstairs room looking out towards the sea. Well, take a look. I had been scanning the horizon of the sea with my own small binoculars. There were a couple of ships going by, a few small fishing boats closer in, nothing much else. I put my eye to his telescope, and I could not believe what I saw. The two ships I had seen at a distance suddenly were so close that I could see their names on the side and people walking to and fro on the deck. But that was only the beginning. Out beyond them, where my binoculars had registered nothing at all, were several other ships, large and small, military and commercial, including a cruise liner. The telescope seemed to have the uncanny power of making things appear out of nowhere. Something that was there that he wasn't really seeing, something that was actual that he needed more power for his vision to open up and to see. That's what Paul is praying here, that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened, that your inner being might see him and know him better. And he asks for this because as Sam Storms has written, the knowledge of God is the gift of God. He asks because we are dependent upon the Holy Spirit to make the truth of Scripture real to us. We're dependent for him to open our eyes to see more clearly what we already believe, to have a, a, a grander view of him. And so he prays that we would know him better, and then he gives three requests. He prays that they will know the hope that God has called them to, that they will know his inheritance in the saints, and that they will know his immeasurable power. That's what the text says. So he prays for hope, inheritance, and power. So I've been praying this this week, but to remember the order. I gave myself the, I just gave the acronym, Hope Inher- Inheritance Power, HIP. So I've been praying HIP prayers all week, <laughs> sitting around, drinking craft coffee and listening to bands you haven't ever heard of, HIP prayers, that's what I am doing these days. But that's going to stick with you. You may not remember anything else, but you'll remember to pray HIP prayers. First of all, HOPE. H is for hope. Know the hope to which he has called you. That's what he says in verse uh, 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. That you may know the hope. Now, John Stott, a commentator, has helped us by saying that the hope of what he has called us to is the goal of our salvation. So hope is future. Calling is past. He's, he, the first chapter says he chose us in eternity past. He, he called us in time. That's past, but hope is future. And so he's saying, I'm, I'm praying that God will open up that you will see the hope. What is the hope which he's called you to? What is your future hope, he's saying. This is the goal of salvation. It is what is coming. It is our destination as a people. Where are we moving as the church of Jesus Christ? It is our destination. And most of us, some of us don't know the goal of our salvation. Most of us don't think that much about it. But Paul's saying, my prayer is, God will open your eyes, that you'll live in the good of this. Your destination. You know, whenever I go somewhere... Uh, on my phone, uh, you know, I have multiple map uh, apps, and I will put in a destination of where I'm going, and I don't know what it did, what we any of us did before this, right? Before phones, uh, to accomplish this, but it will give direction. It'll tell me where to show me on a map, give me line by line what I'm supposed to do. It'll tell me out loud where to turn. But if I don't put in the destination, then my journey. Uh, is going to be like to the nowhere. There's there's no direction. Once I put in the destination, my direction, my des- uh, my my, um, my travel becomes clear. And the same is true here. Once you live in the light of your destination, the hope of your calling, then that gives direction to your life. You know when to go right and when to go left. And when to right. You know you can look on there and see where the traffic jams. We don't always have that in life, do we? Ahead of time, but you, you know what's coming. So how does that affect me today? What is knowing the hope? What is coming? That, that Verse 10, that he will unite all things in Christ, new heaven and new earth. How does that direct me today? Oh, it, it has a huge impact for us today. It is the primary, the primary strength we have to persevere amidst trouble. It's what keeps us going when we encounter or Others encounter and we become aware of injustice, for instance. Because we know there's a day when righteousness will reign and the God of justice will make all things right. It's how we keep going in suffering, knowing that there's coming a day, the end of the book of Revelation tells us, where there's no more tears or sorrow or suffering or pain. It sustains us today in grief because we look ahead And we say there's coming a day where there is no more death. This week we lost a very dear member of our church, a founding member of our church, Terry Olson, who died. And so many in the church who know her uh, felt a little different in the room today without Terry and her expressive, joyful worship uh, with us. But you know what sustains us in our grief is the hope of the resurrection? It was. It was her hope. Caleb and I were able to be with her just hours before she went into the presence of the Lord, and there was a a glist, She was weak, but there was a glistening in her eye of hope, and in her words as well, a hope and anticipation that, f- that that pushed her forward in her death. That hope is not just for death. That hope is not just when we are grieving. That hope is for all suffering. I pray that you will know the hope to which you are called, the goal of your salvation. Like an athlete who's training and is exhausted and can't go on anymore, what can be motivation to continue is imagining the finish line or imagining the medal ceremony with you up there receiving the medal or imagine hoisting the trophy in victory. It's looking at the outcome that motivates through the pain for the athlete. How much more for the church of Jesus Christ that we fix our eyes on what is coming and it motivates us to joyful service of Christ today to press on in difficulty and persevere in his strength. It's not only for suffering but for daily life. This is the hope. The hope to which we called motivates us as we're cleaning the house, as we're working on a spreadsheet, as we're studying for our history test. Because the hope of Jesus Christ says, look, God is going to renew and restore all things in a new heaven and a new earth. He isn't wiping everything out because what we do today has value eternally. So it it gives dignity and value to all of life and motivates. We're serving the king and we're serving him with our eye on eternity, we're bringing order to a spreadsheet because he brings order to all things and one day we'll make a order throughout the universe reversing the disorder that came through the fall. And so that makes, makes an orderly spreadsheet of eternal value in a sense because I do it for the Lord and it's what the mission of his church is, is to serve him. So he prays that they will know H, the hope to which they are called. Number two, he prays they will know the riches of his inheritance in the saints. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you will know what is the riches, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Verse 18. Now, inheritance is used differently here than we read in the opening section of the service today. So like in verse 11, we read it there, in him we have obtained an inheritance. He says it later in the passage as well. So in that case, we possess the inheritance. But that's not what it says here. Here in this section, verse 18, it says, he is called, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Here, it's God's inheritance. He possesses his inheritance in the saints, and his inheritance are the people of God. So he's praying that your eyes will be opened so that you will see God's inheritance in his people. That that we will see God's inheritance. That the church matters to God, that it's his inheritance. This is what Sam Storm says about that. We have a quote where he talks about this. He says, Note well, Paul says it is his inheritance, we are God's inheritance. Paul would thus be praying that we might be enabled to understand the glory and honor and wonder of that privileged status, to understand and reflect upon the spiritual wealth of what it means to belong to God, to be his people. God wants us to fully understand and grasp and experience what we are to him. He prays that our eyes would be enlightened to that. Now, this isn't some modern-day sentimental, you know, pat ourselves on the back, aren't we special? Look at your neighbor and say, you're special, don't do that. But that's not what we're doing here. Tell your neighbor you're special. No, we, no we're not doing that. That's, that's not what he's talking about. He's saying, I pray that your eyes would be open, that you would see that God sent his son Jesus to redeem a people for himself, and that we are his treasured possession. I pray that your eyes would open up to how much the people of God matter to God, that he did not spare his own son. I want you to see how much the church matters, so that will help you grasp. If you see how God values his people, then you will value, because we want to value what God values so in many ways the church and the culture today is at a low point i mean there's great there, there's great stories about the church today in many places but in many ways we're at a low point participation at the church uh, at churches in this country i don't i can't speak for the world but in the u.s it's dropped our reputation culture is tarnished and at some level uh, it's tarnished fairly in some places it's not fair but in some places it is, some ways it is fair. And even many Christians today who believe that Jesus is essential believe the church is optional. So many Christians say Jesus is essential, but the church is optional. And what, what, what he's saying here is the answer to that problem is not that we have a campaign to tell everybody how great the church is and get everybody in the church He's saying, I pray that your eyes would open up, that the Holy Spirit would show you how God values the church, what the church means to God. God doesn't need the church for his own happiness or his fulfillment or his own joy. God chooses to save people. God chooses to create a church. God chooses to build this this people, Jew and Gentile alike, in Christ Christ. For his own joy and his own glory, our participation in it brings him joy, brings honor to his name. God values the church, and Paul is concerned that the people not have their own assessment of the church, but they live with God's treasuring the church at great, immeasurable sacrifice. Who am I to say the church doesn't matter? Who am I to say I can take it or leave it when God says that he gave his most precious gift to win a people for himself so that we are his very inheritance? I pray that you would know him better, Paul says, and you'll know him better when you find out what he loves or whom he loves and love the same. So, H, he prays for the hope, that they would know the hope. I, he prays that they would know his, God's inheritance, in the saints. Three, he prays that they would know the immeasurable greatness of his power. P is power. Paul prays here that, um, that uh, verse 19, that you will know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Paul prays that the saints will have their eyes opened up so they will understand and experience the power of God. Have they experienced the power of God? Yes. They wouldn't be believers if they hadn't. But he's saying, I'm praying that you will know that power. The church needs power, and so he's praying that you will see, your eyes will be opened, that you will see and experience that power. We need power. Listen, the church is all about when when people move from death to life spiritually that's power the church is all about power but it's an upside down power from the world's view of power when we say we're all about power and we want our eyes open to the immeasurable power towards us it's an upside down power the gospel doesn't give the church political power or economic power or even cultural power none of those are promised and matter of fact, throughout church history, most churches have been marginalized and have experienced the opposite of all of those things. They've been politically on the margins. They've been economically on the margins. They've absolutely been on the cultural margins. So it's not that kind of power. Christ gives us power to live, as he said in the beginning, you've been chosen before the foundation of the world, that you may live holy and blameless lives. Christ gives us power to be like him to live holy and blameless lives. It's this kind of power. It is the power to love. It is the power to serve. It is the power to sacrifice. As we get on into the book, we're going to find out that we've been unified in Christ. It is the power to unify in a world that is completely disunified. That's power. And nobody can find the answer how to bring people together. It's only in Christ And it's by his power to live out the calling. We need power to live out the calling of what he's called us together as a people. It's the power to repent, it's the power to love our enemies, to bless those who curse us, it's the power to do good to those who harm us, it's the power to be humble in our character, yet bold in our witness to Jesus Christ. It's the power to give rather than to take. The power to forgive instead of avenge. The power to persevere instead of giving up. This is the kind of power the church needs. And Paul is praying that 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 power is real and is available in the resurrection of Jesus. He's praying, I'm praying your eyes are opened up to that. And that you see that. And that you experience his immeasurable power. That power comes, he says, in the resurrection. Verse 20. He really points us to three things where that power comes. Uh, that he may be, uh, that the resurrection um, uh, toward those, let's see, uh, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward those of us who believe, verse 19, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him as a right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So he's saying, I'm praying you will know his power towards you. Your eyes will be open to that, that you will experience, Not you know that, like the power of his resurrection. One person says the greatest demonstration of God's love is the cross, and the greatest demonstration of God's power is the resurrection. You can't really divide those up, perhaps. It's all one, act, one event in one sense, the work of Christ. But isn't that true? His love shown through his sacrifice and his power shown through doing what no human can do, defeat the power of sin and death and rise up out of a grave, be risen by his Father. So that's power. And then he says, We pray that you will know his power, aware of his exaltation. He seated him at the right hand of the Father. So Jesus sits down to show that his mission is accomplished. He has made the way. He is seated to reign over all rule, authority, power, and dominion. Now, later in the book, those terms are going to be used to describe evil powers. So, in six twelve, chapter 6, verse 12, we've referred to this last week as well. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So he says, I pray that your eyes are open to the power that's yours in Christ. It's the power that raised him from the dead. It's the power that seated him at the right hand of the Father. It's the power by which he reigns today over what we just read, all rule, authority, power, and dominion. So he's saying the power we need is found in Jesus' victorious Rule and reign over uh, spiritual powers, spiritual forces of evil. And the problem is that the church gets suckered into culture wars against flesh and blood and loses sight of the real battle which we are called to, which has to do with Christ once and for all defeating and ruling over the powers and then granting us power to live a different life in a different way so that we are a culture of light in the darkness, so that we are an alternative society to a dying world, a, world, a, a society of people, the church, that lives so fundamentally different sacrificial lives of love that the world is, is reactionary to it either by pushing it away out of hatred for Jesus or embracing it because they see something they've never seen and can't imagine. That's, that's what we're called to. And in this, he just reminds them that you have power for those things because of the ruling and reigning of Christ. The Ephesians were very concerned about spiritual powers. If you lived in Ephesus at this time as a Christian, you were probably tempted to be gripped by fear of powers. They were a culture that was steeped in magic. Uh, they were steeped in mystery religions, where as you went Further into the religion, you found out more spiritual secrets that were uh, not given to new initiates. So it was this kind of level where you found out about secrets and hierarchical spiritual powers, and they were called mystery religions. Uh, They were involved in the cult of Diana worshiping the goddess whose temple was in their city. He says here that Jesus is above every name that can be named in this age and the age to come. They were into names. You needed names over spiritual powers to do exorcisms. You needed names of spiritual powers as part of magic incantations. So they were all about spiritual powers, partially why Paul writes about it here. And Paul doesn't get into the details of spiritual powers and all that. He just simply says, Jesus rules over all of them. That's what you need to know. You need to know his blood defeated the powers. He's ruling and reigning. We don't need a lot of hocus pocus about it all. You just need to know he has defeated them all, and you need to live in the power of that reality. Because he doesn't want the spiritual powers to eclipse their view that they serve a seated Savior whose work is complete. He doesn't want anything to obscure their vision that Jesus rules. So fear of the powers, concern with the powers, obsession with the powers. No, he didn't, he didn't have time for that. He wants them to see Jesus on his throne ruling and reigning. He doesn't want their powers to eclipse their vision. I wonder what it would be for you today. What, how, what is eclipsing your view Of the seated Savior. These spiritual powers are real. I I think he is writing to them because it was probably more of an overt cultural reality for them than for us. They're real today too. But in many places uh, in the Western world, post-enlightenment, they're not thought of as much. But the reality is that we can all have various things that obscure our vision of Christ on his throne. He doesn't want them to fear the powers. What is it that you fear? that you can't see Christ on the throne. It could be spiritual powers, but it could be something else. It could be a person. It could be a circumstance. It could be um, something else that is blocking your view from seeing Jesus ruling and reigning today. The last thing he says to them is he wants them to know not only is Christ resurrected, not only is exalted, but you want to talk about power. He says, Christ fills all in all, verse 22. He put him, he put all things under his feet, gave him his head over all things, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, that's, those are a lot of words together, but here's what it means. I love the ESV study Bible that just clarifies and says, here's the big idea. Quote, the church filled by Christ, okay, the church filled by Christ fills all creation as representatives of Christ. That's what this means. The church which is his body, verse 23, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Christ fills his body, and his body fills the world. That is powerful. What he's he's saying there is that God's plan is to pervade the world with his presence through his people. And that's why Paul's praying. He's praying that we must have our spiritual vision clear and focused on what God has done for us in eternity past what he did for us in Jesus Christ, what he's done in giving us new life, what he's done in sealing us with the Spirit, what he's done in calling us to his purpose, which is uh, moving towards the day which he will make all things new and unite all things in Christ, which is about him sending us out as the scattered church to all the nooks and crannies of planet earth, wherever we go, wherever you work, wherever you live, wherever you shop, wherever you play, wherever, whatever you do, wherever you go, there are you are the presence of God, the presence of Christ. He fills us, and we fill His creation. And in order for that to be effective, we need to have a clear vision of everything we've talked about in chapter 1. We need to have a clear vision of who reigns, who redeems, who is in authority, who has defeated the powers, who rules over all, and who commissions you to fill the spaces of Frisco and the connected communities. He wants us to see that. He prays that we will know him, that our eyes will be opened to what he has called us to. He's praying to make it real. May all that God's done be real in your heart and in your mind. Where is it that you need God's salvation to be real to you today? Is it a hope? Maybe you've lost hope and you need a fresh vision of the hope to which He's called you. Maybe being among the people of God is a chore for you. You're threadbare. You've been burned. You don't want to be, you don't have confidence to be among God's people. Maybe you're watching at home uh, or watching somewhere on the live stream for this very reason. God wants you to know that the church is his inheritance, that he values it. And God wants to give you a fresh vision of his people and your calling to his people together. Maybe you need power. You, you feel like, man, I don't have power to do what God's called me to do as a wife or a husband, as a father or as a mother, as an employee, as a business owner, um, as a son or daughter, or as a family member. I, I, I don't have power. I don't have power over this addiction that keeps returning and rearing its head in my life. I don't have power over the lies that that I know they're lies, but I believe them and give in to them. I don't have power over this overwhelming compulsion for money or security, lust or greed, whatever it is. I I, I don't have power, And, and he wants you to experience his power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, seated him on the right hand of the Father, over those powers in our lives. This year we're talking about discovering our place in God's mission. And uh, so how does this passage help us discover our place in God's mission? Well, verses 22 and 23, wow, it couldn't get any more missional than that, that Christ fills the church and the, Christ fills everywhere else through the church. How does, how does this affect us? Listen, we all want our lives to count, don't we? We, we all want to bear fruit. We all want to make a difference in our lives. But consider this, I came across a question this week that I think it had nothing to do with this text, but I came across a question this week that I think narrows down, targets really how this passage, how Ephesians 1, how an understanding of what we just read affects how we live. Here's the question. As Christians, if you're a Christian, as Christians, are we called to make a difference in the world? Or are we called to live in the difference Christ has already made in the world? How you answer that question makes all the difference. If it's me making a difference in the world, then it quickly becomes about my dreams, my vision, my purpose, my success. But if my eyes have been opened to the hope of my calling to the church which is God's inheritance, to the power of Christ in my life, to the reality that before the world was created, God chose a people for himself with a purpose, that Jesus redeemed us, that the Spirit sealed us so that we would be according to God's purpose, which is verse 10, to unite all things in him in heaven and earth. When I realize what he has done, what he has accomplished, what his plan is moving forward, then I very clearly want to live in the difference that he has made. Because if we do, then the church will make all the difference by the power of God in our world. The resurrected Christ rules and reigns, and he's calling us to lift our eyes off our petty, petty little ambitions and lift it to his glorious ambition of making all what he's going to do and making all things new.